All right. Well, welcome uh, to this next portion of the service, which is going to be Sermon in Song. That would be weird. I'm just kidding. That would be weirdly wonderful. So I was a weird kid, honestly. Um, still kind of a weird adult. Uh, and I grew up with some kind of weird music. When I was a little kid, for instance, I mean really little, like two, uh, my parents said that my very favorite song was this little ditty called Poor Wayfaring Stranger. It went like this. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger a-traveling through this world of woe. What two-year-old is like, man, I love that song. Hey, Daddy, sing the song about the poor, lonely stranger wandering through a world of, of woe. No child sings that, and it has that as their favorite song. Another classic favorite of mine went like this. Oh, major key. Maybe this one's happy. Life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. Nope, not happy. In fact, uh, darker darker than the other one. Maybe you, you've heard that one as well. There's another one, though, that was a favorite of mine that's kind of in that similar sort of sad, minory vein uh, that speaks of our unity. It goes like this. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity may one day be restored. Wait. We pray that our unity may one day be restored. So are, are we unified or not? Or does it need restoration? I'm totally confused. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Now, I'm not making fun of these songs. I mean, these are good songs that have really powerful messages. It's just they all sound sad. And I'm not sure why that was. Verse 2, we will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. Okay, that sounds pretty good. I mean, like we're working together. We're like in partnership. We're unified for one purpose, working side by side, shoulder to shoulder. And we'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. Wait, okay, nope, I'm out. Those guarding dignity, saving pride, those sound a little too political if you know what I'm saying, right? And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. That was my childhood. That was one of many songs that we sang in the car rides that all were happy messages that sounded very, very sad when we sang them. You know, it's funny, looking back now as an adult, reflecting on how some of those words that were so innocent then sound so almost triggering now. The words like dignity and pride and all those things, isn't that true? I mean, in this day and age, it seems like we view everything through this lens of politics. Like, wait, are they making some sort of political statement with that? Words like dignity and pride mean very different things to different people now. A few years ago, I used the word privileged in a sermon. I wasn't making a political statement. I was using a word in English that used to not be a trigger word, but now can't be used without thinking about the political connotations of the word. We may get to the point as a culture where we just can't use words anymore, and we're just going to have to like gesture and nod at one another to make our points or something, because words are just too tricky. And that's never been more true in my lifetime than it is now. It seems like everything is a tell for our politics. If we wear a mask, if we don't, if we talk about race, 
if we don't. If we talk about the environment, if we don't. It's all a tell. It's all virtue signaling. It's all canceling one another. It's all politics. And it's just as true with many Christians today as it is with the world around us. Well, today we're continuing in this series, Why Are Christians So Blank? And so far we've asked the question, why are Christians so divided? And why are Christians so anti? Last week, uh, Caitlin talked to the subject of why are Christians so narrow-minded? Well, today we want to ask the question, why are Christians so politically passionate? It occurred to me that we could have used a number of other P words in that sentence if we wanted to, like, why are Christians so politically polarized or politically partisan or politically pragmatic or problematic or insert your own P word, don't say it out loud. All of those are probably true on some level, but we chose politically passionate because it's a positive take on politics. Why are Christians so political? Well, I think mostly for really good reasons. We care about issues. We care about people. We want to make a difference and help people. We want to make good decisions. We want to align ourselves with people who see the issues and the worldview the way that we see it and believe the ideas that we believe. And the people that we elect make extremely important decisions about marriage and about the environment and about when life begins and about education and immigration and limits to free speech and restrictions during a global pandemic and how much tax is collected and how that money is spent. These are important decisions that we want to be a part of. Because politics matter, we want to engage in the political process in a God-honoring way. But that can be really hard, that can be tricky, that can be complicated given our current climate. Today, it almost feels like there's this spectrum, right? A spectrum that goes from left to right. And everyone has to choose exactly where they fall on that spectrum. And not only choose a place on that spectrum, but they have to be able to defend it and dig in and fortify it. Are you left of center? Are you right of center? How far right or how far left are you? And it used to be that sort of the gravitational pull was towards the center, sort of a centrism that was the default. But more and more today, it feels like the pull is towards the outsides, towards the fringes of the spectrum. It's almost like the, the, the gravitational pull, the spectrum is more like this. And while you may choose a point on that spectrum, the, the pressure, the gravitational pull is actually towards the fringe in everything. And while you could maybe take like a centrist view, maybe kind of a central view right in the messy middle of everything, that's still just a point on the spectrum. But the problem is, is actually bigger than that. You see, not only are people assigned a place on that spectrum, issues are assigned a place on that spectrum as well. The major issues that our world is facing are often sorted into these sort of partisan camps, like that's a liberal issue or, or that's a Republican issue. Issues like sanctity of life and race and, and poverty and immigration and a whole host of other issues. The issues themselves become assigned and associated with the side in the fight. And then the problem is then the other side can't engage and be involved in that cause at all without risking and jeopardizing their hard-fought place on the spectrum. But as followers of Christ, I mean, we should be leading the way in these conversations. And if we can't talk about them, 
then we may be advocating our role as the church to the political systems of this world, rendering to Caesar what should be God's. Well, fortunately, Scripture has a whole lot to say about this. This isn't a new issue. Jesus entered the world and faced a culture that was very similar, where people were trying to assign to other people a place on the political spectrum. Throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus' followers and Jesus' detractors were constantly trying to put him in a camp, make a point for him on the spectrum of where he fit. Was he pro-Israel? Was he pro-Rome? Was he going to finally overthrow the evil empire or just be this kind of kooky religious fringe leader leading revival meetings out in the wilderness that weren't really relevant to any of the pressing social needs of the day? I want to point out that that Jesus would have absolutely have been seen as a political figure in his day. There's a place to write that in your notes. Jesus was seen as a political figure. And that might surprise you. I mean, we've sort of created this caricature of Jesus as this sheep-holding, everybody-hugging, hugging hippie kind of guy in Birkenstocks. Birkenstocks. But that's not how the gospel presents Jesus at all. From the beginning, Jesus is used, I'm sorry, Jesus is described using this very political language. In the first chapter of Luke, for instance, when the angel visits Mary and tells this young girl that she's going to have a child, that she's going to name that baby Jesus, he goes on to say, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's political. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. According to this angel, Israel will be given back the throne of David. Who is currently sitting on that throne? Caesar, right? And Jesus will then reign over Israel and his kingdom will never end. It's all political language in an incredibly political season of Israel's life. Throughout Jesus' ministry, what was the subject that he preached on more just about than anything else? The kingdom of God, right? into an incredibly polarized political climate in a Roman-occupied Judea, Jesus preached over and over. He spoke of this different kingdom, a kingdom that was at hand that would absolutely have been heard as a political message. The Gospels, for instance, present him as Jesus Christ. Christ wasn't his last name. Christ is a title. It's a political title. It means the anointed one who would come and restore Israel to their rightful place of power. And this, of course, put Jesus on a collision course with the political leaders of his day. The gospel accounts are littered with these political leaders from Herod at the very beginning of this story who killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem in order to protect his political place and power to rich young rulers, to to these religious leaders who were, were as much political leaders as they were pious, all the way to Pontius Pilate, as we'll see in today's passage. I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, uh, to chapter 18. Chapter 18 starts off with Jesus' arrest in the garden with his disciples, and uh, Peter, in his ever-present zeal, takes out his sword, and he cuts off the ears of one of the guys, and Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. That's not how we do things in my kingdom. And then Jesus is brought before the religious leaders for kind of their own trial. And then finally, Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate, a truly political figure in the eyes of Rome, in the eyes of the disciples, in the eyes of the whole world. So John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, 
to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So they're at the headquarters of this man, Pilate. And we don't know a whole lot about who Pilate was, but we know that he was a governor appointed uh, to this position of power. He was probably the son of some important person who, know, who knew some important person. And we knew that Pilate knew how to play the game. He was a true politician who could play both sides. We know, for instance, that he regularly caused trouble with the Jews, with local occupants. He would send out soldiers carrying these graven images of the emperor in order to offend them. He had coins minted with the face of Caesar on them because he knew that they would have to then pay their taxes with this money that was an abomination to them. And so here, these, these Jewish leaders, these religious leaders are bringing Jesus before this man that they hated. The people of God are using the political system to accomplish their religious ends. It's interesting to note that it says that they didn't enter into his home because that would defile them and they couldn't then partake in the Passover meal. They didn't want to defile themselves by entering the home when the whole purpose of entering was to have an innocent man executed. It's interesting. Next verse. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And so now here's these religious leaders that are kind of playing the, the politician's game, right? Using this sort of double speak where you say something, but you're not really saying anything at all. Like, trust us, if he wasn't doing something bad, we wouldn't have brought him here. Next verse. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Pilate tries to sort of kick it back to them and say, you know what, this is, this is not my issue. You guys deal with this. This is a religious issue. And they say, well, it's not lawful for us to put him to death. They're trying to get the politicians to do what they can't do. Here's where I think it actually gets even more interesting. Next verse, 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate is asking that political question. He, he's asking, where do you fit on the spectrum politically? And he's trying to figure it out because it's a claim that if Jesus made that claim, Pilate would have to take seriously. There were all kinds of, of young leaders and revolutionaries out there who were trying to overthrow the government, who were trying to gain that throne of power. And so he asked Jesus, are you this king of the Jews? And Jesus does what Jesus so often does. He doesn't confirm or deny that he's a king. He's, he's in fact more interested in getting to the heart of the matter, to the heart of Pilate. Next verse. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Here I think Jesus is speaking to the man, Pilate, not to the governor. He's speaking to the man before him and saying, are you genuinely interested? Are you genuinely seeking the truth? Or are you simply playing a political game? And Pilate answers that question very plainly. <laughs> he says, uh, verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate answers the question basically by saying, you know, honestly, I'm in sort of a sticky situation that could be politically very costly for me. And apparently the situation was caused by you. 
what did you do to these guys? But again, Jesus does what Jesus so often does. He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't speak to what he's done. He doesn't speak of the miracles and, and the powerful speeches and the years of ministry, the healings or the prophecies he's fulfilled. Instead, Jesus chooses to speak of his kingdom. Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. There's a place to write this in your notes. When faced with a political question, Jesus turns to the kingdom. I mean, notice, notice all the pronouns that Jesus uses. It's my kingdom, my servants. Jesus is saying that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not like this world. And the proof is in his people. It's in his followers, his disciples. Jesus is saying, in your world, power is taken by force and defended by force. But my kingdom is not of this world. And my people respond differently, use power differently, use politics differently, face death differently. But Pilate, rather than being curious about this other kingdom, he, he kind of latches on to those pronouns. You know, he says, oh, so it's my kingdom and my people. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say, I'm a king. Pilate's sort of like, wait, so you, you are a king? And Jesus' response to him is something, something like, um, well, that's, that's, your, that's your term. One commentary that I read said this, he, meaning Jesus, is clearly claiming kingship. But he doesn't commit to the label of king, probably because it's loaded with misunderstanding. Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm a, absolutely, I'm a king, but not in the way that you think of it, not in the way that you understand it. My kingdom is not like your kingdom. My politics aren't like your politics. And then Jesus goes on to clarify in a way that this tiny little verse is so significant. He goes on to clarify exactly why he's come into the world at this particular time. Let's read, continuing in that verse, verse 37. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus' Jesus's purpose, his primary purpose in entering the world at this time isn't political power. Jesus has all of that already. He is, he is Lord of the universe. He didn't come to claim political power. His purpose isn't primarily even to engage his people, his followers into the kingdoms and the powers and the politics of this world. That's a place to write this down. Christ's purpose is to bear witness to the truth. And he says that everyone who is of the truth, and that should be you and me as followers of Christ, we listen to his voice. How, how would that change our political political views. I mean, suddenly it's not about a candidate's voice. It's not about a party's platform. It's about listening for the voice of Christ in the middle of the political noise and then speaking that truth into the issues. I think maybe there's another way. Maybe there's a third way, a way that is not of this world, a way that is not shaped by the ever-changing party platforms. Let's look back at, at the spectrum for just a middle minute. 
what, what if we could throw it out altogether? I mean, not that it wouldn't still exist, it would. That is the way of this world. But what if it didn't drive us as followers of Christ? What if it didn't inhibit us and how we respond to the issues and to the people around us? What if instead we used a third way, sort of a kingdom way? What if instead of going to this line, this spectrum, we instead, when, when faced with political questions or real world issues like poverty and race and immigration and sanctity of life, what if we didn't go first and foremost to politics? We didn't first try to figure out if it was a right issue or a left issue, a conservative or liberal issue, but instead asked the question, what would this issue look like in Jesus's kingdom? What is the voice of truth, the voice of Jesus speaking into this issue? One former president famously said, let us not seek the Republican answer or the Democratic answer, but instead the right answer. I think our spectrum would begin to look very, very different. I think it would look, begin to look a lot more like this. Where yes, there are absolutely liberals and they're absolutely conservatives, but there's a third way where we look at the issues and the relationships and the needs that are around us. And we begin to realize that there will be issues where we absolutely need to align ourselves unapologetically with points where we touch that conservative line, where we might be called a hater. Jesus said that we would be called haters, where, where we might need to divide. Jesus said he came to divide where people might say that we're anti or that we're narrow-minded. Those are absolutely unapologetically what we need to do. And there will be issues and relationships where we may need to align ourselves unapologetically with a stance that might seem very liberal. Where the issues that we are facing, that we are addressing, may cause people to call us lefties or hippies, or, or we may be rejected by our more conservative friends where we may need to depart and actually divide from other Christians whose politics don't agree with our actions. Caitlin was recently talking with a friend and they were talking politics and Caitlin was just kind of going through and describing her stance on some of these issues. And her friend said, I don't, I don't get it. Like on some of these issues, you seem super conservative. And on some of these issues, you seem super liberal. And Caitlin said, welcome to being a Jesus follower. Welcome to the third way. She didn't say that, I added that. <laughs> Welcome to what it looks like to see the kingdom of God as our first kingdom, to seek first the kingdom of God over and above the kingdoms of this world. A third way where our politics and our actions aren't driven by our party, but by Christ's kingdom and Christ's voice. That's the sort of kingdom building, truth seeking, spectrum bending kind of community we wanna be. Emmanuel, the, the kind of community that together listens for the voice of Christ, the leading of his Holy Spirit, and then is willing to bear witness to those truths in our world and in our politics and in our workplaces and our schools and our homes and our neighborhoods and even in our churches, no matter the cost. The, the kind of community that chooses not to divide over issues where scripture seems to allow for multiple interpretations but absolutely stands together strong. It says that scripture is going to be our only standard for faith and conduct. The kind of community that recognizes that while God created government, humans 
created politics. And unless any of the parties is fully aligned with and fully focused on God, then Jesus will have things to both affirm and critique about any party. The kind of community that that causes people to ask questions like, why are Christians so generous? Why are Christians so selfless? Why are Christians so great at relationships and so known for their love? Jesus promised that we would be known for our love. And our prayer is that that unity would be so restored that people would look at us and say, how, why are they so united in their love for one another? The kind of community that has no king but Christ. You see, I think this story of Jesus and Pilate and the religious leaders, I think it also has a warning for us. As you continue to read, you you see what happens to the people of God when they align themselves too closely with the political systems of their day, even with the very best of intentions. These religious leaders, these are the priests, these are the temple guards, these are the people of God, and they see this Jesus who they believe to be a heretic, who they genuinely believe to be a blasphemer, and they tried to use the political systems of the day to accomplish what they thought was for the good of God. And it ended terribly. Let's read uh, chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked and slapped him across the face. You could see that political language that permeates this as well. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand that I find him not guilty. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the, peop- and the purple robe. And Pilate said, here, look, here is your man. When they saw him, the leading priests and the temple guard began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Take him yourself and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, by our law, he ought to die because he called himself son of God. When Pilate heard this, and this is so interesting, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into his headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? I think suddenly Pilate is becoming more curious about that other kingdom. He's realizing he's dealing with something so much more than simply a man. But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, you have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one that handed me over to you is the greater sin. Then Pilate again tried to release him, but the Jewish leader shouted, shouted, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Friend of Caesar. I think that's a significant term here. Anyone declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out before them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement. It was now about noon of the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. What? Crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priests shouted back. The people of God, the leading priests said, we have no king but Caesar. 
The people of God had so closely tied themselves to the political powers of their day that at some point, they stopped becoming the people of God, even with the best intentions. We, as modern-day people of God, as modern-day followers of Christ, need to always make sure that our politics, our use and engagement in the systems of this world are constantly being checked against and aligned with that voice of truth, aligned with that voice of Jesus, aligned with the Holy Spirit, the Word of God and the voice of Christ. We have no king but Christ. I want to end by just reading a quick passage from Psalm 20. It says, Some trust in princes, some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let me pray for us. Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word, uh, for the example that you've given, um, and so many of the things that, that you've shown us, that you've taught us, that you've modeled for us, are just so countercultural. Countercultural to the world around us, but even countercultural to some of the ways that we've sort of developed this religion over the last 2,000 years. God, I pray that you would give us a fresh, new understanding of what it is that you are calling us to do and to be in this world for your sake and for your glory, but also for the sake of the world around us. God, we repent of the ways in which we've become known uh, for things that aren't honoring to you, for our bickering and for our fighting and for all those sorts of things. God, we want to represent you well, but we wanna make sure that we're representing you well, God. So God, we pray that you would align us Give us wisdom to know where, where do we need to stand apart from the world and even sometimes from other followers. Give us wisdom in knowing when we need to be narrow-minded, when we need to stand against things that we see and experience in this world. And then God, help us to use the powers in this world in a way that is honoring to you, that is fully focused on you and your kingdom, that we might, we might represent you well in this context. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.